Howdy. If you haven't already, make sure to follow us on all the socials. We are at History and Film on Instagram and HIF Pod on Twitter. My personal Twitter account is at TrackNerds, and you can always email me at Simmons at TrackNerds.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. And I'm Logan Denning. And after spending the last four years and change going over world history, one movie at a time, we wanted to do something a little different and also kind of wrapping up that whole project with a tournament of sorts. Yeah, so we're going through all of world history as covered in the podcast and uh, determining who is the most interesting person in all of history. So the only criteria we had was that they had to be mentioned at least once in one of our episodes. We didn't have to do an entire episode about them, but they had to be at least talked about. So they're split up into four brackets based on the time period during which they were alive. And today we're in the Enlightened Industrialist bracket. Yes. Oh, no, wait, no. We're in Medieval on Your Ass. We are in the Medieval on Your Ass bracket, my favorite bracket. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, oh yeah, I just love being able to pull the uh, Pulp Fiction quote when I was naming these brackets, and it was uh, of course that was like just the easiest, the most obvious. It's, it is the best bracket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the first round we went through, we had thirty-two names. First round was just uh, more of just kind of a knee-jerk reaction, and now as we're in the Sweet Sixteen here, uh, with the asterisks that the NCAA cannot claim our copyright because that's all about basketball and blah blah blah. Anyway. Always seems weird, though, too, because I think they do actually copyright that. But it's also like what people call like 16th birthdays. It's like your sweet 16. It's like they they can't. I don't know. I get confusing on or I get confused on when they actually do try to challenge people for taking common names because they anyway, we're going to call our sweet 16. Don't tell the NCAA. And (laughs) so we're trying to do more detailed biographies. This is our. Yeah. Our sixth now of eight matchups in the sweet 16. Being a little more thorough with the background, still voting the same way. Last week, we did have uh, Osaka the Great beating Ramses the Great. And yes, this week pits Genghis Khan, the Mongol ruler who led to one of the greatest empires in world history. And Henry VII, King of England, who's going to be a bit of an underdog. <laughs> so you heard that right. Henry VII, not Henry VIII. <laughs> It is Henry the Seventh. Yes, right. and uh, and we are going to we we do like we'll have the lower seed go first. So I will kind of start off here with Henry the Fifth. Sorry, <laughs> oh, man, whoa! There's a Freudian slip for you. He's the fifth seed in his region here, right. so that's why I said that. Not because Henry the Fifth is more interesting. <laughs> no, I tell you what. So yes, I'm going to make the case for not just Henry the Seventh versus Genghis Khan, but Henry the Seventh versus all the other Henrys, kings of England, we could have chose. And I know Logan just kind of went with me on it, and I'm going to make the case. The scenario I thought about, though, here, too, for this matchup, because uh, Genghis Khan is a formidable opponent. And uh, did you ever watch Star Trek Next Generation by any chance? Um, a, f- a few episodes. Okay. Um, I wouldn't consider myself like a big fan, but I've seen a few. Okay, so there's there's one where, and I forget the exact setup. Okay, basically they're debating if uh, Data, you know, the, the android lieutenant right. or whatever, mm-hmm. if he is an autonomous individual or if he is right. Starfleet property. Okay, so kind of like Amistad, but, <laughs> but for Data? A hundred percent. A hundred percent, yes. So 
the Starfleet person or whatever who comes in and basically says, okay, you're going to have to, we're going to basically have the trial and they have like Picard representing Data is an individual and they assign Lieutenant Riker to the other side where he has to defend that, that he's just Starfleet property. And Riker basically tells the, the judge, like, I can't do that. I don't believe it. And he's like, well, you're going to do it or we're just going to rule the other way anyway. So like, you basically have to give me a fair shake. So the whole idea, the reason I'm bringing this up is regardless of how I'm going to vote, I'm going to sell the heck out of Henry VII. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be Riker trying to convince you that Data is Starfleet property, even if I don't believe it. But what, you know what? Honestly, though, we'll see because last week... Absolutely. We've we've definitely been that way where we end up changing our minds or we are convinced by the other argument, but uh, yeah. Right, because last week you were like, oh, I'm going to like give Ramses a fair shake, but it was basically to you like a foregone conclusion oh right that ashoka was going to take it but that ended up going to a vote because you convinced I me convinced the you. other way <laughs> true true and hey and maybe i'll convince myself or yeah anyway we will see i do think henry the seventh has a huge undertaking or to kind of go against genghis khan here but i'm gonna make the case and i still feel pretty comfortable with the fact that we picked henry the seventh over the other henry's I mean, not not just the ones in his time period, but even going back to Henry II, you know, Henry V with Azure Henry VIII and all his wives. It's, it yeah. almost seems silly that we picked Henry VII. But the underdog position is absolutely where Henry VII thrives. He was a born underdog from the beginning. And I'm going to kind of do this in a few passes here. So I'm going to start with... The War of the Roses itself, because he is ultimately the person who puts an end to the War of the Roses. So even though it begins and has the history of it kind of dates back, you know, even a century before his birth or whatever. But we're going to give you kind of a rundown of the War of the Roses. Even though it's not directly his life, it is the background into which he comes to prominence. And I don't think you can tell Henry VII's story without having an idea of the War of the Roses and kind of what it represents. And uh, I think we've mentioned this before, maybe, actually, probably the last time we talked about Henry VII, but the War of the Roses is like, not only is it super interesting historically, it's so interesting that it's like the main basis for Game of Thrones. Yes. For like A Song of Ice and Fire, the book series and the show Game of Thrones, like the historical stuff that it's based on is the War of the Roses that actually happened. Right. And even, I mean, obviously, even the names in Game of Thrones, Lannister and Stark being like the main houses. Well, in the War of the Roses, it was Lancaster and York. Like, it's not a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah, I was even going to say, like, as complicated as Game of Thrones is, you can make an argument easily that the War of the Roses is probably more complicated. And I'm going to give the super, super Cliff's Note version of it. You could easily do, my, my rough guess was... You could do a hundred hour either documentary or full on series, like at ten seasons, ten episodes each, all one hour, and it would be really, really compelling and it would be cover the War of the Roses over a century and it would just be this fascinating look into all the ins and outs and intrigue. And I'm gonna try to do that in less than ten minutes. Yeah. yeah I mean think about Game of Thrones, the T V series. You no, could do right. that, only right. make it the War of the Roses, and it would be just as interesting and right. probably even longer, honestly. I no, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I think it would I think it would be longer. So it does all kind of go back to we mentioned before Edward the Third, of course, the son of Isabella of France and Edward the Second. So right. we've talked about uh, Edward the Third's mother before. 
So Edward III is kind of the prototypical medieval English king. And what's kind of neat here too is it is just the height of the medieval period with, you know, knights and jousting tournaments and chivalry and all this stuff. You think of like the, the you know, the Middle Age glory is like the reign of Edward III. And, right. and it kind of starts off, they, you know, they want some land over in France. So they, the Hundred Years' War starts during this time. And then his son is this great general, the Black Prince, who we saw in A Knight's Tale. And everything's just great in the world of England. In A Knight's Tale, which is like, it's set right in the middle of the time that you would think of as, you know, stereotypical medieval times. Yeah. Yep. With the Absolutely. jousting terms. Like, that is... The, the time that we're talking about because the black prince is in that show they, they're talking i think they even talk about like the free companies in the hundred years war in france in the movie as well yeah because even yeah even the, i think even the final tournament of the little jousting thing is actually in france and stuff and yeah they're kind of going mm-hmm. back and forth and yes so it seems to be all set up for just this you know great glory for england that will just continue on and all is right with the world and ever the fit or sorry ever the third has five sons and just you know no no question of you know the heirs and everything else everything's all great well not so much because his eldest son the black prince dies before edward the third and actually and his second son uh, lionel also dies before their father so when edward the third dies he has three sons remaining but of course they are not king because the black prince did have a son a 10-year-old Richard II. So you have basically this generation of these three sons of the king that survived kind of get passed over in favor of their younger nephew. And they kind of want to still have influence because they're still basically in charge as far as having the clout in the country and everything. Like, mm-hmm. So the overview, though, of who kind of... <laughs> again, I don't even know where to start with the War of the Roses, but I'm going to try to give you of who's all from these sons of Edward III. So... The Black Prince, again, died before their dad, has Richard, his son Richard, does become Richard II, and is king for like 23 years, but starting when he's a little kid. And Lionel, who also died before their father, had just had a daughter, but then her branch does actually lead. He is a direct ancestor of Richard, Duke of York. Again, that's mm-hmm. going to come in uh, later. The biggest player is actually John of Gaunt. He's basically the ancestor of all the Lancaster side in the War of the Roses. King Henry IV, we'll get to here in a second, is John of Gaunt's son. Then you had Edmund, so he had an Edward the Black Prince, and then Edmund, Duke of York. So his fourth son, Edmund, Duke of York, he's also an ancestor of Richard, Duke of York, who's going to be a major player. So basically, Richard, Duke of York, is descended on of uh, two different sons of, of Edward III. Does that make sense? Because they, they all married their cousins. Mm-hmm. And then the last one was... Uh, Thomas, and he actually doesn't have anyone I'm going to mess with in our story here today. He obviously did have kids that had kids that were kind of, you know, involved, but none of none of his descendants became a, a king. Yeah, so power plays, power plays, power plays, again, all kinds of episodes we could do here. But at the end of the day, John of Gaunt does die, but his son Henry basically overthrows his first cousin, Richard II, and becomes Henry IV. And... Richard was just a weaker king. Henry was kind of the more, you know, go-getter type and basically just booted Richard when he was off over in Ireland. And Richard comes back and basically surrenders himself. And they're like, great, you're now in prison. And just he just <laughs> kind of dies in prison. And it was pretty uneventful. But then Henry IV 
has his son Henry V, who's of course the great general going up against the French. So there's not yep. really we're not really in the War of the Roses yet because the Richard II getting overthrown has nothing to do with uh, York and Lancaster. Lannister, man, I, Lancaster. Oh man, I'm gonna mess up the Game <laughs> of Thrones thing constantly. Like there, there's no there's no avoiding that. So we're not really in the War of the Roses yet though because basically it's just the Lannister line because John of Gaunt was the Duke of Lancaster. If right. I say Lannister, just hear Lancaster. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so Henry V doesn't have any challenges to his throne, so everything's still fine. Lancasters are in charge. But here's where stuff starts to go down. Henry V dies and leaves an infant son as the heir to the throne, mm-hmm. Henry VI. Henry VI, you can make the argument, is the worst king in English history first from being obviously just a child you know when he takes the throne and has to have other people in charge for him but then also he's completely incompetent as he grows older as king and so when he's making decisions they're the wrong decisions and then he's also the one who has you know the fits of madness or nervous breaks down where he basically just goes catatonic for like a year at a time like he Mm -hmm. is absolutely worthless he's either catatonic and doing nothing or he's back with it and alert and making all the wrong decisions. He's just a horrible, horrible king, which opens the door for the York line to challenge his right to the throne. So Richard, Duke of York, who I mentioned is from two different sons of Edward III. <laughs> Again, everyone is named Henry, Richard, or Edward. So this is really, really tricky yeah. to keep track of. <laughs> yeah. It's like uh, it's like it in, uh, in the French like the French royal line where everyone's named Philip or Charles or Louis. Like <laughs> Right, right. And sometimes they're Henry too. Oh, the, yeah, 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 yeah. So yes, when you had when you had the young Henry the Sixth, he had multiple regions, but one of the regions was his, you know, like second or third cousin, Richard of York, the Duke of York. So you basically now have to think of it that way. It, we're not yet at the war of the roses, but you do have a young Lancaster king with a York regent. Does that make sense? Right. So when Henry then the sixth Henry the sixth gets married to a, uh, his wife is French. She's immediately very skeptical of Richard York's ambitions and ends up basically even like throws him out of court. So he's mm-hmm. he's kind of he's kind of booted, which all seems fine except well now you have because Henry the sixth is basically incompetent. So it's almost like his wife, this French woman, is calling the shots through him. Her court is not popular, horribly corrupt. So the people in general and the nobles and everybody kind of side with the Yorkists against Henry VI and his French queen. Because again, he sucks and she's kind of corrupt and not English. Right. So this is where the war does kind of start, where there, are, there does start being battles now actually between the Yorks kind of supporting Richard of York here at first against kind of the French and the Lancasters with the incompetent Henry VI. Richard of York does die, but then his son takes up the cause, does ultimately take the throne. Basically, they're just like, please be king, please be king at one point. And he does become King Edward IV. Everything seems to be, well, again, well, sorry, nothing secure. But you are now definitely in the War of the Roses. The Yorks have now taken the throne with Edward IV, the son of Richard, the Duke of York. Henry VI is just kind of often exile-ish i forget exactly where he ended up and again i actually think actually like he lost the throne for the first time he goes catatonic for a year again mm-hmm. he, he, again he was the worst <laughs> <laughs> is that like 
is he the worst because he just like sucked or is he is this like he was he's basically i think he was dumb too i think he was legitimately a dumb person who had fits of madness and going catatonic and his wife made all the decisions and he just basically did nothing right but i'm saying like is this is this like a laziness thing or today would we see him as like maybe on the autism spectrum or like some sort of developmental disability that was just undiagnosed back then and they were just like oh this guy's just like fits of madness like is there consensus or, or evidence one way or the other on that? um i didn't look close enough to see their specific evidence of being on the spectrum but he definitely i mean back then they wouldn't even have had no exactly exactly so yeah yeah uh right i don't know if he was just dumb or if he was you know more of a you know learning disabled of some kind but he just was not fit to rule however right. you want to cut either it, way right? probably not the guy you want Right. your country. Yeah. Right. So it makes sense that, you know, the people kind of want the Yorks at this time. Right. So, but a major player that kind of helped him get Edward IV get his throne uh, was the Earl of Warwick, who, again, another kind of Game of the Thrones thing, because he's got the mm-hmm. awesome nickname. The Earl of Warwick was called the Kingmaker, because he was right. actually one of the huge nobles who helped, just from the actual military side of things, putting Edward IV on the throne. But then, well, he's also then making all these alliances. He, he, again, he's the mover and the shaker. He's almost kind of like a little finger if he was also a general. Like, he's just, he's right. actually very, very good at doing all this stuff. But Edward IV marries for love instead of going with all the political alliances that uh, Warwick is trying to make. So Warwick switches sides. And this, this gets to be why he's, why he's called the kingmaker. He switches from the Yorks and joins back up with Henry VI, rallies an army, and they boot Edward IV and put Henry VI back on the throne. So again, Warwick is the kingmaker. He's basically deciding yeah. who's king. And then Edward IV gets more, gets more troops, and he comes back. Warwick is actually now finally killed. Henry VI is deposed for the final time, and Edward IV is now back on the throne. And if you look at the play Richard III or any movie version of Richard III, they show Edward IV seizing power. It's this time. It's the second time he had the throne that is the beginning of Richard III. Now you can see, oh, okay, we had the back and forth between the Yorks and the Lancasters, and the Yorks have won. Well, for now, so we kind of hit pa- we had kind of hit pause in the War of the Roses. Edward the Fourth has a stableish reign, has two sons. Everything seems fine for England, England moving forward, except when Edward the Fourth dies, his sons are too young to be king outright. His son does become Edward the Fifth. However, he's never crowned because Edward the Fourth's brother is Richard the Third, right? Who uses some rumors of all these marriages that were actually kind of an issue. We mentioned the whole Warwick uh, was playing these marriages and Edward the Fourth married other people. Well, there's, mm-hmm. there was enough to say that one of his engagements counted as valid, and so his marriage to Edward V's mom was invalid under the church. So basically, Richard III exploited all of these things to basically say, right. hey, my nephews are bastards, so mm-hmm. I'm king now. Right. And then the princes and, princes in the tower, again, because they're put in the White Tower, they're never seen or heard from again. And Richard III is king and not super popular, but we've basically exhausted everything, right? Like, there's nothing left because uh, Henry VI did have a son, but he died before Henry VI in kind of all the fighting and stuff. Henry VI ends up kind of captured and dead. And uh, the best video I saw on YouTube, I, it's uh, they basically say he like he died probably from a case of the murders. <laughs> 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 so the Lancaster line seems to be dead. The York line is now down to just Richard III, so we don't really like him, but we have no other options. Oh, wait. 
there is one man who can save England. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Henry Tudor. So, how does he play into any of this? Because he hasn't come up so far, right? And, yes, I mentioned him being an underdog. His claim to the throne is so, so thin as to be virtually non-existent. So now I want to rewind that we've gone through the War of the Roses from the beginning through, again, most of the War of the Roses is the Henry VI versus Edward IV thing. That's basically the bulk of the fighting is kind of them going back and forth. Mm -hmm. But we now do have the Yorkist Richard III on the throne, and Henry Tudor is going to basically revive the deceased Lancaster side and claim he is the, the Lancastrian king that can take over and, and has the right to, right to the throne and is, is going to try to get everyone on his side. So the Tudors, going back well before any of this, were a prominent Welsh family, even involved with some kind of the, the last throes of Welsh independence. The Tudors were kind of very much, you know, high up in, in Wales trying to fight off the English and, and maintain their autonomy. Obviously, that was ultimately a lost cause. One Owen Tudor was actually in France with uh, Henry V when doing, doing all the Battle of Agincourt thing. I don't know how much he actually fought, but he was over there during that time. And he comes back to England. is in a semi-prominent position. Again, his family's high up in Wales, but in England, you know, not so much. But he, it's enough that he ends up being basically a member of the court for Catherine of Valois, who is the wife of Henry V. So this Owen Tudor is kind of in her court, almost even kind of like the the chief of her wardrobe or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, that's probably a little higher position than it sounds like. Anyway, mm-hmm. after Henry V dies, leaving infant Henry VI, you know, in charge, like we've talked about with, you know, these York regents or whatever, Catherine of Valois marries, probably, Owen Tudor in secret. It's kind of crazy. Like, they had a couple kids. There's no So there's no record of their marriage. Mm-hmm. But there's also no instances of anybody trying to say their kids were illegitimate. So right. they were probably, everyone seems to accept that they were married. But so you now have an Edmund Tudor and a Jasper Tudor are kind of these, these two young Tudor boys. They are the sons of the king mother and half brothers to Henry VI. Well, I mentioned Henry VI was not a great king, but he did love his half brothers and was able to use his influence to promote them up. So even though they don't have any royal blood, I guess Catherine of Valois probably does on the French side or whatever, but basically he elevates his otherwise obscure half-brothers to, oh, I don't know if it's earls exactly, but basically they do end up kind of being ranked just, you got like the royalty and you got your, your, your dukes and stuff. And now the his Tudor half-brothers are just below that. So they're actually... Right raised up enough that Edmund Tudor is in a position, so this would be the uh, half-brother of Henry VI, uh, is able to marry Margaret Beaufort, who is a great-great-granddaughter of Edward III. Her great-grandfather was John of Gaunt, who I mentioned was the most kind of prominent surviving son, the original Duke of Lancaster. So there's, there's that thin Lancaster thread Coming gotcha. through Margaret Beaufort marrying Edmund Tudor. So their son, Henry Tudor, born when his mom is 13 years old, is uh, technically descended from, I mean, I guess he is descended from Edward III, but he's his three times great-grandson through his mother's side, 
which is basically the equivalent to no claim at all to the throne. Right. Yeah. So during the War of the Roses, he's kind of in and out of court. If the Lancasters are in power, he's able to kind of be at court there and stuff Mm -hmm. since his dad was the half brother of the king. But then when the York, whenever the fourth takes charge, he has to basically beat it and go into exile to hide out over in in France. Edward the fourth was aware that Henry Tudor was a threat on paper because of this very thin claim. And he even escaped at one point from being in prison where he might have been executed. But so he avoids capture by the time Richard the third comes to power. Margaret Beaufort was a big advocate for her son and basically just says, hey, you guys all hate Richard. There is an option. My boy Henry over here would be a great king for you. (laughs) And so that's kind of where it leads. And Henry Tudor uh, raises an army. His first attempt is actually repelled. And then he finally, uh, on his second attempt to invade England, he lands in Wales, the ancestral home of the Tudors, Mm -hmm. and is able to defeat the armies of Richard III, who outnumbered him. But again, Richard wasn't popular. A lot of people defected to Henry Tudor's side and joined Henry's cause. And Henry did defeat Richard III on the field of battle. So Richard III is the last English king to die in battle. Henry Tudor becomes Henry VII, the last English king to win his throne in battle. And the last little piece of this that I then want to then go back and retreat again now, one more coat of paint to put over all of this is a little more on that Welsh side. So we mentioned before the Welsh, and then you also got like the Scots and the Picts and all these old like Iron Age Celtic tribes that were basically the first inhabitants of Britain. The, mm-hmm. Like the actual island of Great Britain was all these old Celtic tribes that, you know, again, came over in like the Iron Age and stuff, just had been here forever. So they would have been the ones that built like Stonehenge and would have been the ones that when the Romans came in and built like Hadrian's Wall and stuff, right. it, would have been, it would have been all these old Celtic tribes. Uh, with, right. Yeah. And then after the Romans leave, you get the Anglo-Saxons start coming in and putting these old Celtic tribes and just kind of beating them back. So King Arthur, when you look back at Excalibur and King Arthur's group, he's a Briton, again, B-R-I-T-O-N, a Briton. Uh, fighting against these Anglo-Saxons and all this old prophecy stuff in Camelot. That's all the, basically the native population against the invading Anglo-Saxons. Anglo-Saxons do ultimately kind of take over the area that is now England and Mm -hmm. the Picts and the Scots are forced north into what is now Scotland and what becomes the Welsh and Wales are kind of pushed off to the west. Right. But that that's who claims King Arthur. So there's this well, old that's why yeah. that's why England is called England, right? Because it's the Angles, it's Angle land. Right. Land of the Angles. Right, right. Right. And then so and that's also why today too you you can go to Wales and still see signs in like not English because right. it was literally a different language that some of these people still speak. And so it's a whole it really is a different people just because they're all white, we don't necessarily see it but it's like it's a completely different ethnic group well it's uh it's illustrated pretty well in the episode of the crown when uh prince charles has to go to yes wales to learn welsh yep absolutely the kind of even today there is a right there's there's still a rivalry there for sure right and so that goes back to this time there's also then all the and i don't know all the prophecies exactly but remember arthur is called the once and future king the whole idea is that yes one day the basically the Britons 
with you know i'm saying it weird because it's it's not i don't want to be confused with like the island of great britain it's it's right. it sounds the same but it's spelled differently and it has, it has a little different meaning here but anyway kind of the idea would be that they will one day return to save england and so the idea that the tudors being from wales and then when he comes to take the throne from richard the third he's even landing in wales where the native population are going to be like yes the tudors the welsh are going to conquer england it's 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 half revenge half fulfilling right. a prophecy and everything yeah. is just building towards yes henry tudor it's the underdogs coming from behind that got beat you know a thousand years earlier when king arthur was around <laughs> who's just a legendary figure of course and then so henry the seventh does a lot of really quick moves to kind of build on this mythos. He knew his claim to the throne was very thin, so he was trying to build up all right. these kind of to hype ideas. Up everybody else, right, right. <laughs> that I'm basically the idea that okay, yes, on paper my claim is thin, but it's all because I was destined to be king. This right. is the fulfilling of a prophecy. He ends the War of the Roses by marrying the daughter of Edward the Fourth the sister to the princes in the tower so she's a york princess he's right. the he's the lancaster person so you get the the roses uh the separate roses are united into the tudor rose which, which is like a, what a what a smart move on his part like it, yes now my heir brilliant. is going to be there's no question that my heir will be like the legit right right and that yeah. and that's that's a big thing he basically he knows the whole, the whole rest of his reign, he knows his claim is soft, but he's setting everything up so that his children's authority cannot be questioned. Right. He's like, you guys may doubt me for the rest of my reign, but you yep. can't doubt that my kids are the proper rulers right. through, through everything here. So he names his first son Arthur. <laughs> the whole plan was for him to... So even though King Arthur back in the day was like a legendary figure, the plan was that Arthur would be King Arthur II. Like, he really right. was going to be the next King Arthur. And the other, the other little uh, crazy thing he did was he backdated his reign. Basically, uh, I forget the exact dates. Actually, no, I have it right here. So the, the Battle of Bosworth Field where he defeated Richard III was August 22nd, 1485. He made it to where he was officially king on August 21st the day before the battle like on paper he like they basically said he like actually rewrote history to say like no he was the king the day before and then had to challenge richard III over the throne he had already claimed what that did though was anybody who was fighting on richard's side richard's side was now guilty of treason for fighting against the proper king oh yeah and so he was able to seize their property just hold them accountable in any way he wanted and again he just was doing all these things in a very calculated move. And, and obviously, yes, there's a power side of this, but it's also about stability. Mm -hmm. So after, I mean, the fourth was a decent king, but after kind of the mess of Henry VI and, and Richard III was in, in between, he wasn't, he wasn't actually the worst, but he also was not very popular. Where England kind of, I guess, lucked out is that Henry VII was a really good king from like an administrator standpoint, like mm -hmm. Henry the seventh was like the CEO of being King. Like they talked about most Kings, like his son, Henry the eighth, just hate all the, all the meetings, all the privy council stuff. Like right. Henry the seventh was the one in there taking notes, asking questions. Like he was just, 
into all that stuff. He would do all the treasury work himself. Like, I, I wonder how much of that was like because he just legitimately was good at that, or you know, like because he le- legitimately did enjoy it, or if he knew if, if it was also goes back to his kind of thin claim thing, like, hey. My claim is kind of thin. I have to do, like, I have to be the best king. Like, I have to be the best ruler these people have ever seen because my claim is so thin that, like, if I'm not the best, then they're going to start having problems with me. I, I so think that's like, what yeah. is it? Like, a kind of an inferiority complex, I think, where he's like, I have to go above and beyond. I don't have a choice. Yeah, I, I think definitely for that, partly that. I think partly if you want it done right, do it yourself. Like, I'm that not going to, I'm not yeah. going to leave anything to chance. I know I can do these things, so I'm going to do them so they get done correctly. Uh, He was, so as much as, I don't know if it was most, but a lot of the country definitely was buying into this mythos that he was building up around his story to claim the throne. Though there was definitely other people who just kind of saw him as a pretender. Mm -hmm. We didn't really kind of mention that. So I mentioned his mom was descended from John of Gaunt. Well, John of Gaunt had two wives. He had... The one who was the mom of Henry the Fourth, but then the Beaufort line was actually his mistress, oh. who he later married. And Parliament even had a law on the books that said that branch was barred from ever holding the throne, and that was the line that led to Henry the Henry the Seventh. Yeah. So they had to get that even that changed. But you can, so there was definitely parties that were trying to find other more obscure Yorkist cousins and other people with similarly thin claims to the throne through all these branches that were kind of constantly trying to challenge him. So early in his reign, you know, especially before he's having kids and stuff, or uh, even, even after Arthur's born, he's dealing with a lot of these challenges. There, there's a, there's a famous one where, so even though he married Elizabeth of York, the Yorkists were still kind of against them. They basically trained this kid to pretend he was Henry or he was Edward the fifth or his son basically one of the princes in the tower and they were basically rallying around there was actually battles fought where they were kind of propping up this guy is one of the princes in the tower it was a fake i mean it was it was it was later proved well, to that's be like that's fake, a but. that's like a another game of thrones connection from not from the show but from the books where Varys and uh what's his name the other guy that he's with have that kid that they're saying is Aegon targaryen oh right right, right. Like trying to make it like that's it's just another yeah another game of thrones connection yeah yeah so yeah these kind of things absolutely happen so the uh, the next piece is marrying off arthur to make a prominent alliance again he's got these crazy thin claims oh but then he makes the marriage match for arthur to the daughter of the king of spain catherine of aragon Right. And so everything's just, everything's mostly great. Like he basically, he put it, the, uh, the War of the Roses was like 30 years of fighting with like 50,000 casualties were killed while these people are fighting uh, for the throne. Just in England, you know, basically just an English civil war killing 50,000 people. So Henry yeah. VII put us, puts a stop to that, is getting the stability, getting le- the legitimacy, is a competent ruler. Again, he's ruthless at times. He, he's definitely raising taxes and doing some things people don't like. But he's a good ruler for stabilizing the country and establishing this Tudor dynasty. And, and Arthur does marry Catherine of Aragon. And then everything starts to go downhill because Arthur dies as a teenager. Catherine of Aragon will later, later say that... 
Uh, the marriage was never consummated, which is what allows Henry VIII to marry her. That actually right. happens after the death of, of Henry VII, though. In general, though, he was, he was an interesting guy in that he seems to have been extremely smart. They say he was very friendly, but also very serious. So mm-hmm. he's just... He, he, he's just a really, really smart guy, and that just seems to kind to uh, kind of stand out in his actions and his demeanor. Like he was kind of that calm, cool, collected type. But yet, they also say after Arthur died, he was just like wailing in front of people on the palace. Like it just devastated him. I mean, and rightfully so. And, and similarly, when his when his wife died, they tried to have another kid, but then she dies in childbirth. And even though that was obviously a major political marriage. They were sincerely in love. Like, he didn't have mistresses. He didn't marry again after her. Like, he really was in love with Elizabeth of York and equally devastated when she died. And then he dies in 1509, six years after his wife. They are buried together and all that. The other thing I was going to mention, and I think this is kind of kind of neat, is that you could also, it's a pretty easy argument to make that Henry VII's reign begins in the middle ages and ends in the renaissance and that you can see the reign of henry the seventh is the transition from it's almost too perfect because yes he's literally taking the throne in battle against richard the third super medieval and then he dies at the exact same time that michelangelo is painting the sistine chapel right so it's definitely this is the transition king from the medieval period to the renaissance period i mean even if you look at like our brackets, the way that we broke them out, like he only barely is in this bracket. No, right, right. He's definitely at the tail end of medieval, and yeah, it definitely gets into more of the Renaissance stuff. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you wouldn't see a Renaissance king really taking his throne in battle necessarily from the other right. king. But uh, yeah, so I, I think that's Henry the Seventh again. I, I do think he's a fascinating figure. It is kind of this ultimate underdog story because you can tell the whole War of the Roses without including him until he comes in at the end. But then you right. can see how he was kind of there the whole time. And yeah. it was this Tudor setup and the, the whole Welsh thing. And it's all set right. up for this this you know, beautiful comeback and this fulfilling of prophecies. And the narrative, just at the time, the narrative was there. I think I mentioned last time, Lamort de Arthur is actually published the year before his son Arthur is born. And so it would have been like a cultural thing you know right. like guys at the same time so the story at the time was just too perfect and then it kind of ultimately falls to tragedy for him but that's yeah. part of what makes him fascinating though i, I think he's I, interesting i think after hearing your bio i think we did pick the right henry to be in this okay bracket. right right I, I i mean granted henry the fifth also super interesting henry the eighth is super interesting too but i think that i think that we did pick the right one i think he has the the coolest narrative like it's I think it's I think it's the most interesting. Yeah, the rise to power and and yeah, and how the tra- the tragedies. Yeah, I I I know it's a it's not the obvious pick, but I I really did feel. I remember when I said we kind of knew we were going to pick a Henry, and I was right. putting for Henry the Seventh, and you're like, I don't know, man. <laughs> well, the first time I saw because we when we were just like you know put making the spreadsheet with the people we wanted, I thought you just mistyped. I thought you meant to type <laughs> Henry the Eighth, and you just left out one of the Roman numerals. <laughs> No, nope, but then I, you clear you put in parentheses. Yes, hit, yes, that's the correct one. Like, yes, I, seven. This is the right. I'm meaning to pick Henry the Seventh. <laughs> so yes, that that is my case for Henry the Seventh. I I know it's going to be tough against Genghis Khan here, but uh, I you know you know what I want to give him his due, and let's uh let's see what Genghis Khan has to say about it. 
All right, before we get started, I have to just take a sip out of my uh, Wyatt Earp. You tell him I'm coming and hell's coming with me, Tombstone Mug. R.I.P. And get, get, yeah, yes, R.I.P. Wyatt Earp and uh, Genghis Khan. Hell often comes with him as well. <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. That's uh, absolutely the case. So Genghis Khan, uh, he was born in the late 1150s to early 1160s. Is I don't think they have a. There's not an exact date of his birth. Um, actually, at that time in that part of the world, a lot of people didn't know how old they were. <laughs> oh right, a, which. I guess it, it makes sense because they, you know, they wouldn't have had like calendars or like the record keeping to do that. And also, like it, in our culture and society today, so much of your life is delineated like by year, especially with school and stuff. Where you could, like, I could look back on my life and say, "Oh, okay, I know exactly how old I was at this point, at this point, at this point." But yeah, for these people, the difference between you know being a six-year-old and a nine-year-old is like irrelevant. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. We're already off track. <laughs> uh, so his birth name um, is Timogen, which I think that was the name of the movie, right? That he was covered in. No, uh, the name of the movie was Mongol, but that's right. But but they call him Temujin throughout. Genghis Khan basically is never mentioned in the movie. Yeah. They just call him Temujin. Yeah. yeah. And yes, I know this is our show, but uh, I w- wasn't on that episode, so just yes. for the listeners, that's yes. why I don't remember the name of the movie. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, did did we did we say what movie uh, Henry the Seventh was from? Oh right, so uh, well we talked about Richard the Third. So yeah, Henry the Seventh does show up at the end at the end of Richard the Third. Okay. You could argue he's mentioned maybe in then A Man for All Seasons because that's about his son, but probably not right. so much. But he's more of the Richard the Third. He shows up and he's kind of the faceless army who beats Richard the Third at the end of that movie. Yeah, right. All right. So uh, birth name of Genghis Khan is Timogen, uh, which meant blacksmith. Not a lot is really known about his early life when he's younger. Again, because when he was first born, he really wasn't, um, I mean, his dad was like a tribal leader, but it, he wasn't some huge, like, imperial ruler at this point. Um, it's not the same as, like, uh, someone from British royalty, for instance, being born at this time. So we don't know a lot about his early life, his childhood. We do know that when he was nine years old, he was pledged to be married to the daughter of, a, of another tribe. And that uh, when he was 12, or at marrying age, his dad took him to this other tribe to meet his first wife, whose name is Borta. I think I'm pronouncing that at least a little bit correct. So he's with this uh, other tribe. Basically, he's going to grow up with his new wife. And his father leaves. And while his father is on the way home, he meets some Tartars who are they are from a tribe that has been kind of that was historically like their enemy, but they poisoned the dad, but give him some poison food. And this is a lot of this is kind of like according to legend, maybe not a hundred percent what happened, but anyways, the dad is killed by these Tartars. So Timogen returns to his home tribe and wants to take it over as chief. He says, all right, my dad's dead. I'm going to be in charge now. Um, but the tribe doesn't, uh, we're still too young, right? Right. Yeah. So they refuse. And actually his, family is kind of just like kicked out of the tribe the tribe just kind of like leaves and like leaves them behind because they, they were like a nomadic tribe they were mobile it's so kind of kind a of like, like, it's very it's a dothraki thing to keep the game of thrones thing going yes yeah. yeah actually that's that's actually a really good comparison so the rest of the tribe leaves timogen his mother and his brother he has like a half a couple of half brothers and a couple of brothers 
and they're kind of just out in the wilderness surviving by themselves. Timogen, during this time, ends up killing his older half-brother, because I guess his older half-brother is kind of, <laughs> again, this is this is like according to legends and stuff, but his older half-brother is like kind of a dick and was maybe stealing a bunch of food and also wanted to marry the mom because it wasn't his mom. Basically, where he, marry his dad's second wife kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, Timogen didn't like any of that, so he, he kills him. In 1177, Timogen is captured, taken prisoner by his father's former allies, um, but he ends up escaping. It's not completely historically accurate how this happened, although I did hear one story that was kind of cool. I don't know how true it is, but if it is true, it just kind of shows his ingenuity. Basically, he's in this like big wooden kind of lock thing that holds his head and his arms together. Right. Oh, it's like the, his, the stockade. I think they call. Him. Yeah, yeah, but not fixed in the ground. It's like he just walks oh, around with this thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So he's he's wearing this thing, and he ends up overpowering the guard who's like tasked with watching him, and runs away. But he gets to a river and realizes he can't make it across the river with this thing on his head and his arms. So he goes back, finds the guard who he just overpowered and says, hey, if you don't let me out of this thing and give me a horse, I'm going to tell everyone that you helped me escape. <laughs> and it works. And so the guard lets him out and gives him a horse, and he rides away, which is badass. Help me escape, or I'll tell everyone you helped me escape. <laughs> right, yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So that's in 1177. The next year, 1178, Timogen travels to go find his wife that he's been separated from for like seven or eight or nine years at this point he goes and finds the tribe finds the dad of borta his first wife and he marries them shortly thereafter uh, a tribe called the Merkits attack this tribe that timogen is now hanging out with and they capture borta and borta is given to one of the warriors as basically spoils of war as a wife timogen escapes he's not captured um, and he goes and gets help from Wang Khan and his childhood friend named Jamuka. And they rally a bunch of forces together and go back to rescue Borta. And this is something that I guess I don't really think about when I'm thinking about history. A lot of things, especially today, happen so fast. And like travel is so fast, communication is so fast that it doesn't really click in my mind how long things take back then. Right. So after Timogen's wife is captured, he escapes, goes and finds a bunch of dudes, you know, two other guys with their armies, and they come back to rescue her. It's eight months later. Like eight right. months had passed during this time. So by the time Wang Khan, Timogen, and Jamuka with their forces reach the Merkits, attack them, defeat them, capture Borta back, eight months had passed. And during that time, she had given birth to a son. Now, she was married to Timogen before she got captured, and they were married for, like, a little while. So it's not clear 100% whether this is Timogen's son or the son of the guy who was, you know, oh, this is my wife now, you know, captured slave. But that doesn't matter to Timogen. He says, well... This is my wife, and she's given birth to this kid, and so I'm not gonna, like, kick this kid 
out of my family and I'm going to claim the son as my own. Um, and this is my first son, which uh, I think is kind of cool. I mean, by today's standard, that's kind of a no brainer. Like, uh, yeah, that's like good for you for not leaving this baby like in the wilderness on its own. But at the time, that's kind of like a really progressive thing and like kind of a big deal that he did that. Right, right. No DNA testing back then. <laughs> right, yeah. So this alliance between Timogen and his childhood friend Jamuka kind of continues, but there does start to be this kind of separation, a little bit of a rift between the two of them because they both had different philosophies on how they wanted to run their tribe. So Timogen thought that the tribe should be run based on meritocracy. So it doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter what, uh, well, gender matters a little bit, but <laughs> like your your birth doesn't matter. So nobility doesn't matter at all. Whereas Jamuka thought, no, like the nobles of the tribe should run things and then their children should run things after they die. Like that's just right. how we do it, which is how it's done pretty much everywhere else in the world at this point. Right. But they, uh, this rift grows and grows and eventually the tribe splits into two. So you have Timogen with his tribe and Jamuka with his tribe and they start fighting. The first time that they fight, Jamuka actually wins because he has a bigger army. He outnumbers Timogen's forces and, uh, he defeats them, and he captures a bunch of Timogen's generals and boils them alive, which uh, <laughs> that's that's got to be a bad way to go. Timogen, obviously, when he finds this out, is not pleased, and uh, in 1204, they meet on the battlefield again. During the time between these two wars, Timogen had like really trained up his cavalry to also be archers, which is kind of like the thing that makes the Mongols so successful for the rest of their empire, is their super fast cavalry who are also really good archers. Um, it's kind of like their their thing. So Timogen had the better trained army. He had a better led army because, as we talked about before, his leaders were promoted based on meritocracy and not on who their dads were. So he had more competent leaders. And he himself was kind of more strategically gifted than Jamuka was. So the night before their battle, he has each one of his soldiers light five fires as kind of a psychological warfare because he knows he's being watched by Jamuka's scouts. So when they see five times the number of fires that they expect, they're like, mm. oh man, this <laughs> army is like absolutely huge. And so they're all freaking out. Timogen's forces destroy Jamuka's army the next day in battle. They crush them with cavalry charges. They fake a retreat and then set an ambush. And Jamuka falls for it. His army is destroyed and Jamuka flees. And then two years later, he's captured because he gets betrayed by some of his own generals. So some of his own generals say, you know what, let's get Jamuka and take him to Timogen as kind of a, a peace offering. But <laughs> Timogen then pulls out an Uno reverse card and kills the guys who betrayed Jamuka as a kind of extending an olive branch of friendship to Jamuka. Basically saying, like, hey, look, I just killed these guys who betrayed you. I don't have any place in my army for, like, rats, for people who are going to betray my guys. And so let's be friends again and run the tribe again. And uh, Jamuka refuses. He says there can only be one sun in the sky. And he doesn't think that him and Timogen can both rule that there can only be one. And obviously you're the better one because you beat me. 
So give me a noble death. This is Highlander? It, it, it's there like, could be only yeah, one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is, I mean... No, it's it's kind of badass. <laughs> it's crazy, but also, yeah. like, good for him, man. Good you for him. You want to be my friend? No. Well, yeah, right. but it's not realistic, so just kill me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Jamuka gets a noble death. It's not really clear, again, from the history records what that means. I saw one source that said that maybe he was, like, suffocated to death in a carpet. Um, another one said that maybe his back was broken. I guess the in their culture, a noble death is one, or like the the most noble death is one where your it's where your blood isn't spilled. Oh, so it was it would have had to been like some way where you know it's not just like which the, Rome and Europe would have saw it different. Rome would have been like the beheading was almost a clean death for Europeans, right? Yeah, yeah. The Mongols saw that as more that's no, you're dismembered, so that's not a clean death. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, so Jamuka is killed. And Timogen is given the title Genghis Khan. And so Khan is, is the name. It's kind of like ruler or sovereign. And Genghis Khan means like oceanic sovereign or universal ruler. So basically, Khan would be like, oh, I'm the leader of a tribe. Genghis Khan is like, I am the leader of all of the Mongols. Right, right. So once Timogen has united the Mongol Empire, he knows that China wouldn't allow them to just exists he knows that there's going to be a conflict there because well china had built the great wall of china to keep the tribes of mongols from kind of coming into china and like you know and, and raiding that northern part of china so i guess his fears weren't exactly unfounded uh, but either way he didn't wait around to find out whether china was gonna let them exist or not so he kind of like launches a preemptive invasion of china he plunders his way across the country and makes it to uh, what is modern-day Beijing. It was a walled city, so not uh, not like a village or a undefended town that he can just burn and invade and just walk into. But he doesn't really have any experience in fighting a walled city. So what does right. he do? Well, he goes and captures a bunch of Chinese engineers and says, if you want to live, help me make machines. Build me some ladders. <laughs> yeah, basically he... He captures a bunch of Chinese engineers and forces them to build him siege warfare devices and then cuts off all the supply lines to the city so everyone inside is starving to death. And uh, there's, like, records of people resorting to cannibalism in Beijing at this time because it was just so bad. Like, they had no other choice, basically. And uh, the city ends up falling and they enter the city with basically no resistance and they've captured Beijing that's crazy. I guess I didn't know. I, I knew they conquered everything, but somehow just the idea specifically of Genghis Khan capturing Beijing hadn't occurred to me. Oh, yeah. This is kind of like the the start of him conquering. He says, you know what? I'm like pretty good at this and uh, <laughs> I like it a lot. And so we're, you know, we're here in Beijing. Why don't we just go west? Why don't we see what's that way? And they conquer basically all of the Middle East. They start conquests into Eastern Europe and then additional conquests back into China. Uh, if you look at on the Wikipedia page for Genghis Khan, there's a map that shows just in his lifetime, not even counting like the rest of the conquests of the Mongol Empire after him, but just in his lifetime, the conquests that he went on. And it's like an arrow that's like squiggles across all of Europe and Asia 
for like his entire lifetime where he's just like going from place to place because his army was super mobile they could cover like right 70 miles in a day because they're all on horseback and so they're just going from town to town just so easily you know it's it's not like a like in the crusades where you'd have to like march on foot right or, or you just have this this heavy armor and the horses are more tired it's like no right. they they were lightly clad they were yep. fast they were agile they're yeah. fighting from horseback so you don't have to like dismount and roll your broadsword or whatever right. yeah 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 so super effective on the battlefield and also super mobile between engagements as well so then back then on a subsequent conquest into china in 1227 he dies and the cause of death is unknown possibly died from a hunting accident um like we've talked about before with some of the uh british monarchs who died the same way um he might have been wounded in battle one source said that he fell off a horse um i guess there is a legend i think it's a chinese legend about a princess that he captures who he's gonna make his wife but then the princess like smuggles a small dagger in and is able to like mortally wound him hmm. either way he dies in 1227 on his deathbed he is said to have said to uh ogadai khan his oldest or sorry not his oldest son but the one who ends up ruling after him he says i have conquered for you a large empire but my life was too short to take the whole world that i leave to you <laughs> which like that sounds kind of like arrogant and like but it's kind of true because that Mongol empire then becomes the largest contiguous empire in world history. Like Napoleon couldn't touch him. Alexander the great couldn't touch him. Hitler couldn't touch him. Like, well, well, even the the British empire, they ended up being like a quarter of the world, but it wasn't contiguous. Right. That's the big difference. Right. It right. was bigger than like the Soviet union. Right. Yeah, because the yeah. Soviet Union was basically a part of it, like Russia, oh, China, right. all the Middle East, Eastern Europe, all under the same empire. Right. 11 million square miles. <laughs> right. So uh, that's, that's something I really thought about, never really thought about before. Just the ambition involved. Everything we just said about Henry VII was to control England. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, that little space over there. Genghis Khan was like, yeah, he's like a picnic conquering England and exactly. then go on and conquer all the rest of Europe. Like, it's just like the scale is just not even on the same planet. Yeah. So he was buried in an unmarked grave. To this day, no one knows where he's buried. And legend actually says that everyone involved in the funeral and funeral procession was then executed so that no one would know where his remains are. Huh. So I don't know. I don't know if that part is 100% true, but. Either way, no one knows where he's interred to this day. It is kind of crazy to think that just somewhere in a field in the former Mongol Empire, Genghis Khan is buried. Yep. Just, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's crazy. Uh, th so the, the movie Mongol did cover basically everything you said through the battle where he defeats Jamuka. It basically ends with the battle against Jamuka there. And okay. they, they do kind of an accelerated timeline where you kind of said the guys capture Jamuka and kind of bring him to Genghis Khan or Temujin later. The movie just combines it all, and they basically bring him right right to him on the battlefield. So they, they condense the timeline, but everything right. you were saying is like right out of the movie. Yeah. And, and then I think the plan was to do multiple movies getting into then the conquering of China or all this other stuff, but it basically just they did the first movie and that was it. But it'd be nice 
it would have been great to be like the beginning of a trilogy of movies for sure because it actually is is really, is really well done with all yeah. the Borta stuff. Uh, I'm he, he's had uh, the other things I kind of remembered was I'm pretty sure he was like really religiously tolerant as he's going to going around. Yeah, and that that continued with like the rest of the Mongol Empire, similar to like Alexander the Great. Yeah, where whenever he conquers somewhere, he says, you know, hey, you know, you can keep your religious customs and everything. I'm not going to force you to follow our ways. As long as you're loyal to us, I don't care what you believe or what religion you practice. And and again, a, a lot of this is stuff that happened in the Mongol Empire after his death, but he was the one who like united the Mongols and started the Mongol Empire. But uh, spreading art and scientific knowledge and philosophy across his entire kingdom in a way that wouldn't have been possible had there been like several empires to go through between Eastern Europe and China. And a lot of that was like, like we talked about when, when we covered him the first time, it's like a good and bad thing because it's like, well, the fact that knowledge is traveling is good, but like the way that he went about it, where he would just like round up a bunch of scientists and engineers from Eastern Europe and then like forcibly ship them to China to spread their <laughs> knowledge. Like that's kind of messed up, but like the result is that all his knowledge got spread right. around, which is like a good thing, right? And hey, we're uh, we're not picking the best person; we're picking the most interesting right. person, right? <laughs> and then there are also kind of a bigger picture look at his empire. Some historians think that the Mongol Empire was at least partially responsible for the Black Death or the start of it. Oh yeah, yeah. On the flip side, though... Because the timeline uh, kind of works out, yeah. Yeah, on on the flip side, though, uh, that he... Or that the... Sorry, that the Mongol Empire, rather, was, like, one of the sparks that ignited the Renaissance because oh. of the fact that there were artists and artisans and engineers and scientists from the far-flung corners of the world that would have been unknown to Europe that were then being transported there. You know, you get, like gunpowder and stuff from china oh true you're everywhere in the world has their own things right the mongol empire started i mean there was trade obviously before this but yeah as far as just really on an ex, in an accelerated way getting different things to different parts of the world and back and forth and trading right. knowledge and goods it, it would kind of be accelerated during the mongols okay huh. right yeah so that's uh the life and influence of temujin aka genghis khan Okay, my few other notes here were, one, I think it probably can't be overstated how challenging it was to actually, others had tried to unite the Mongol tribes, but my understanding was almost like they were all so stubborn that the idea that they would bow down to anyone being above their little local tribe would be, like, not realistic. So Temujin was the first that actually, like... Yeah. For centuries, all these different tribes all over just doing their own things. And then Temujin yeah. is finally the person that they are. So just like his force right. of personality, not just, you know, the physical and war might. Like at some point, he must have been charismatic enough to convince all of these people to join him and rally yeah. behind years of small nomadic tribes who now were part of this empire. Right. And it also, it's like a thing where it's kind of goes again to show how smart he was and forward thinking he was, was that when he would conquer an army he would absorb all of the you know absorb the warriors that tribe or whatever into his own army but he would kind of break them up amongst the ranks that he already had and not let them kind of be his own thing so he has this like 
amalgamation of all these different people that he's conquered, but they're all kind of like mixed in together, scattered about to where you don't have big concentrations of any one group that will that then, can, like, that can revolt against you, right? They're almost yeah. forced. He basically forces them to work together, right? But also does it in a way that they're kind of okay with. So there's no reason right. to basically try to have an insurrection against them. Exactly. Yeah. Man, to bring uh bring Star Trek back into it, he basically is creating like the Borg Collective, where kind he's just kind of yeah. constantly collecting these new tribes, integrating them, and making himself stronger the whole right. time. Oh wow. Yeah, and then the I was gonna say just the meritocracy thing also can't be understated like that's or can't be overstated like it's just right. so important and unique and like well you and said, to us that sounds like a no-brainer like yeah of course you know you hire the best people the best right that thing should be in charge of that thing but at the time it wasn't that way and no one had thought of had right. had that notion for like thousands of years it was right. just oh well whoever is in charge is just the son of whoever was in charge before right and you just had centuries of you earn those things not just for yourself, but for your offspring. And right. he's like, no, screw that. You earn it for yourself. The end. No yeah. one inherits anything. You have right. to earn everything. Yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, uh, I think it comes down to, if we're going to compare these two guys, I, I love Henry Seventh, but he kind of just did things as they've been done before and did them well. Temujin was a game changer. He changed the way things were done. Right, like, yeah. That was kind of my my look at it was, yeah, Henry VII did, he played the same game, like, better than anyone else, and in a, kind of played it in a new way, but Timogen, Genghis Khan, like, changed the, changed sport. the rules and basically <laughs> broke the game and made his own game and said, now everyone's playing this game, and if you don't want to play it, I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, and go. <laughs> also, uh, going back to the the genetic stuff that we were talking about last week. So this is, this is more impressive though, because this is less than a thousand years ago, but scientists have estimated that one in 200 men in the world today, which most of this is concentrated in like East Asia, but one in 200 men in the world are a direct descendant of Genghis Khan, not can trace their lineage back to, you know, he's somewhere in their family tree. No, they are a direct descendant of Genghis Khan. Huh? And uh, oh, so yeah, the, the game thing though. It's, I just <laughs> I still get a kick out of that. Henry the Seventh was playing chess and beat everybody at chess. Right. Genghis Khan kicked the chessboard over and said rugby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I do think that there are people left in this tournament that can beat Genghis Khan, but I don't think Henry the Seventh is one of them. Is that probably fair to say? I mean, I don't think so. I don't. Th- I don't think Genghis necessarily wins at all, but but I, I think I think he clearly wins this matchup. Yeah, yeah. So th- this is probably one of the least close uh, matchups we've had in the Sweet Sixteen. Even though I do li- uh, do like Henry the Seventh, but uh, I think this is pretty clearly Genghis Khan. Yeah, that's that's my vote. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's my vote. Like I said, I. I, I like I said from the beginning, I wanted to give Henry the Seventh a fair shake. I think he's fascinating. I think he's an underrated king of England. But at the end of the day, he's just the king of England, and Genghis Khan is one of the greatest conquerors and leaders in world history, and right. just and just an absolute game cha- game changer on so many ways with much larger lasting influence. And so, yes, Genghis Khan, one seed in the medieval on your ass, advances to the final eight. Now, the other final eight qualifier from this region is Empress Matilda, but they will not face each other because heading into the elite eight, we are reseeding. 
So Genghis Khan will actually face the winner of our matchup next week when we pit Cardinal Richelieu against Elizabeth I. So check back next time to hear that matchup. And until then, we'll catch you later. Bye.